Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Church health, biblical model of church leadership. This is our, four, our final topic, our ninth and final topic in our church health series. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've been helped by it. I've been encouraged. It's helped me. Maybe if for nobody else, this was for me because I needed it. I needed it. I hope you have found that you needed it as well. And uh, after this, uh, I think I'll be in the book of John, if I remember from my notes correctly, as we uh, begin to usher in the Holy Week season and the Easter season. And uh, so we'll be looking at some texts there. In our first eight topics, there was very little room for debate, I would argue, in those topics. We, every local church, must get preaching right, expositional preaching, biblical theology, the gospel, conversion, evangelism, covenant membership, church discipline, and discipleship. We must, we must get these right. There's not much wiggle room. There's a little here and there, but not much in those topics. When it comes to the qualifications, qualifications of a man for the office of pastor, elder, overseer, we must insist that this too is a topic that is very, very little wiggle room, the qualifications. For example, in our culture, it's very popular today that a, one of the qualifications of a pastor is that he be a man, in essence, yet so many churches have women pastors. And so that would be an example of, hey, you know, listen, the Bible is very clear about the qualifications of the leader of a local church. Now, with this... I'm willing to acknowledge when it comes to more specific models of church government, how a church is organized and structured, we must be a little less dogmatic. You, you must understand that different churches and denominations will do things a little differently without it being heresy. Now, I do not mean that we as a local church and me, me as an individual pastor do not stand firmly on what we believe the scriptures teach about church government. But I'm just saying we need to be a little more gracious. We, we stand very firm on the qualifications of a pastor. We're going to be a little more gracious in the particular model that a church may hold to. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, and this is in part where we're going. There are three. I just want to give you a history lesson, if you will. There are three basic models. When I say basic, I'm giving you the cliff notes, okay? So some of you be like, well, actually, the Presbyterians or the Roman Catholics, okay, I get it. There's more. But this is the basics, three basic models of church leadership. Number one is the Episcopal model. This has been, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm willing to admit it, this has been the most used form of church government since the time of the church father Ignatius of Antioch. It was basically undisputed as the form of church government until the Protestant Reformation. It remains the primary and the, appro the primary approach of the Roman Catholic, Anglican, Greek Orthodox, and Episcopalian churches. And so basically this mode or model of church leadership is a hierarchical system in which you have bishops below, pastors below, if you will, and then it goes up. Each level has more authority in the Roman Catholic system, for example, who, which pope or which bishop has the most power and authority. The Pope does. So it's this echelons of authority. The second pr primary model of church leadership is what's called the Presbyterian model. This form has been common in both Presbyterian churches, but also in Reformed churches, uh, such as the Dutch Reformed Church, for example. It's often described as elder rule. 
Okay, So a plurality, more than one elder, is elected by the congregation or sometimes by a hierarchical body or by the drawing of lots. It depends on the tradition of that particular denomination. And these elected elders of that local church will serve not only that church, but they will be a part of a larger body of elders serving a regional representation called a classis. And this body will send, uh, send representatives up to even a broader or a bigger body of power, if you will, authority called a synod. Now, each broader category or hierarchical system, in this system, it's not, hey, we have more power than those guys and we tell everybody what to do, at least in, not, not unless they've been given that authority, if that makes sense. The churches grant that authority to them versus with the Episcopal model, they, it's just theirs. Okay, the Pope is in charge of the Roman Catholic Church, whether this local church likes it or not. And so it's a little different. You say, could you be a Presbyterian? I could it, it, when it comes to this, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, we may debate a little here and there, but I, I see some wisdom there. I understand the, the, what they're doing. Three, the third main category of a mode or model of church leadership is called congregational or congregationalism. The congregational form of leadership is founded on the biblical principle that each local church is an autonomous, that means a law unto themselves, autonomous expression of Christ's authority, meaning each local church is independent and self-governing, okay? These churches often will be in association with other like-minded churches. So here in our county, there's a 40-something other Baptist churches that are somewhat like-minded, and we kind of get together and do some stuff together from time to time. But this is completely voluntary. There's no obligation to remain in association if we don't want to. So most Baptist churches are what you would call a congregational church. And there are various kinds of congregational churches, but Baptists tend to be one of those. There are, but here's the thing. There's two kinds of congregationalism, at least. There, there could be more. There's at least two kinds. Here they are, two types of congregationalism. One is the single elder, so one pastor, singer, single elder-led congregational rule. <clears throat> This is when a local church elects one man, chooses one man to serve as the elder or the pastor. And while the elder is consulted for counsel and for leadership ideas and his opinions and such, at the end of the day, in a single elder-led church, unless he's a dominator, which that happens too, uh, where he's like the CEO instead of the pastor, but generally the church makes the majority, if not all, of the decisions in the church in essence. The second model is called a plural, elder-led, congregational rule. Plurality of elder-led, congregational rule church. This is when the local church elects a body of elders to serve as a plurality of leadership who are equally responsible for shepherding the flock. Okay, so no one elder is above the other elder. Now, normally... Among the elders, there will be what's called a first among equals. And basically, that's what we do here at our, our church. And what that means is, Matt doesn't preach as much as I do, right? You hear from me publicly more. I'm the one typing stuff on Facebook, for example, or I'm the one, maybe I reach out a little more. That, that's, that's normal. That, that's the way it's supposed to be. First among equals, especially in a smaller church, you're going to get to hear my 
mouth more, okay? That's just the way it is. And so, and generally speaking, the first among equals is the only paid minister, typically. Now, larger churches, they may pay some of their elders, but, but I personally believe uh, you should have quite a few of your elders not being paid. It just helps keep a good balance there, uh, staying off ulterior motives for, you know, greedy gain and that kind of thing. Now, so in most cases in these type churches, the elders make the majority of decisions on behalf of the congregation. It's elder-led in the sense that we're making most of the decisions. You say, well, how is that still congregational? Because like in our church, the congregation is still the final decision on very major things, such as, for example, the annual budget. I've always said this before, the majority of disagreements, it seemed like, and fights and vying for power in the church I grew up in at the business meetings was over the, over the budget. Not the annual budget so much as the week-month-to-month budget. And so my, here's what I'm saying. When you guys approve an annual budget, what does that do for the elders and the deacons too? It frees us up, right? Because we have a piece of paper to go by that says, hey, we approve that you know, we're going to spend money this way. And so it really frees us up so that we don't, have to, we don't have to make a decision over every little thing. Like, oh, that light bulb went out. We need to change it out. You say, you say that's ridiculous. Churches don't do that. Yes, they do. Maybe not literally the light bulb went out, but I literally sat in a business meeting at a church I pastored in Mississippi, and this was what came up. The, the discussion was, uh, there's a fluorescent light that went out. The ballast went out in the hallway. Uh, we need to vote to replace it. What do you mean we need to vote to replace a fluorescent light fixture? Now, if we, need, we might need to vote to replace all the lighting in the building, which, by the way, we did when we did this renovation. That's about exactly what we did. But that, isn't it a little silly? So anyway, I, I digressed quite a bit there. I apologize. So it's still congregationalism because you guys, you make decisions about an annual budget, which is huge. You also make decisions about major renovations. If we were going to sell this property, you would have to make that decision. Uh, we, we can't make that on, on your behalf. The deacons, as, uh, as your, uh, those who oversee the property, help us with that. They can't do that. Uh, and at the end of the day, ultimately, you have the final authority because if you don't want me to be your pastor elder anymore, you can vote me out, right? And so what that does is I, it's not as though I just have this freedom of power and authority that I just get to be pastor forever and you do what I say. No, I'm held accountable, I'm held in, a, in an honest, mutual relationship with you where we trust one another, right? You trust me to lead you, and I trust you to let me lead you. And same with Matt. So, so we're, it, that position, can be, we can be removed. You can look at the bylaws. There's a way to do that. If you want to scone, just you know, go ahead and do that. Uh, but that's not to be for biblical reasons, mind you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I digressed again. At Grace Life, we affirm a plurality of elders, Okay. Matt and I make most of the decisions on your behalf while remaining accountable to you and how we lead, which keeps us, our leadership in check, right? Keeps us honest. Before diving into Paul's teaching on what the qualifications of pastors, elders is, what those are, let's lay down the first two points are really foundational bricks because you have to have these to even press forward. Number one, here, here's the first main brick. Jesus is the head of the church, it's so important for us to realize there are some men who lead a church and they think they're all that. They think they're something. They think they're somebodies. And I'm just here to tell you, apart from Christ, every man and every woman in the local church is nothing, including the pastors, including the deacons, including the, I don't care who you are. There is no bodies in this church tip, it, without Jesus. 
Jesus is the head. This is confirmed by Paul, for example, in Philippians 1.18 when he says that Jesus alone is the head of the church, the body. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus is alone is the great shepherd. Peter teaches that. He alone is the head of the church. Number two, the words pastor, overseer, and elder in the New Testament describe three titles, or even, you can almost say even three functions, but three titles for one office of leadership. This is the thing that was groundbreaking in my studies in seminary. And, I can, and it's so groundbreaking, and it's just so earth-shattering. It's so earth-shattering that it really begins to divide you up from other Christians, unfortunately, at times. Again, as I said earlier, we want to be gracious and merciful. But yet, as I studied this concept, it blew my mind. It helped me see things very differently. So there's three words that refer to one office. There's only one church leader, ultimately. And they'd have, but they have three titles. So overseer. Paul uses the word overseer twice in our verses that we're going to get to in just a minute. But when he does so, he actually uses two versions of the same word. They're, they're slightly different meanings, yet slightly exactly the same meanings too. So for example, verse 1, Paul uses the first form. And that, and it, that word overseer there, episcope refers to the act of supervising. It's not a verb, but it refers to the act, the behavior of supervising, overseeing something. In verse 2, the form of overseer is episkopos, and it describes the overseer as a manager, as a supervisor. So an overseer is a manager or a supervisor who supervises, who oversees things, who manages. He's a manager in that sense. Never thought I'd grow up to be a manager, Thank God I'm not. I'm an overseer instead, but it's the same concept. The New Testament uses the word overseer, if you include this variant here, five times, and the verb form one time. There's a verb form, and we'll look at that one in a minute. Then there's the word pastor in the New Testament. The word pastor is poimain. It literally means shepherd. The pastor is a shepherd. This is the most frequently used title for a local church leader in Protestant Christianity and evangelical Christianity around the world. Ironically, it is the least used word in the New Testament. Isn't that odd that we do that? Again, doesn't mean the church is in error because we do that necessarily. Again, we're trying to be gracious. But isn't it ironic that it's the least used title for a church leader? The word, the noun, appears one time to refer to a church leader in the New Testament, and it occurs two times as a verb in the shepherding, in the verb form. And then we get to the word elder. The word elder is presbyteros. You can hear presbyterian from that. Sometimes it's translated. Some translations will call it a presbytery. You can hear it in that way. Elder is used to describe an official within a group of people. Now, it can refer to a person who's a senior adult. It can't literally do that. But when it's used of church leaders, it's not saying it's a bunch of old men leading the church. It's, it's talking about something else talking about spiritual maturity. This word, brace yourself, I know I'm preaching on safe ground here. In the New Testament, the word elder is used 16 times to refer to leadership in the local church. And every time that of those 16, it occurs in the plural, which tells us that that local church had more than one elder. Okay. Now, there's a few of those that may be debatable, but for the vast majority, it's clear that the elders were a plurality. 
So it's interesting to note that Peter joins all three functions of these titles together to describe one role of one leader, all the while giving the preeminence and prominence to the term elder. You want to hear it? 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. And yes, we're going to get to our text eventually. Long introduction today. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. So I, I exhort the elders among you. I exhort the church leaders among you. Not the older people. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. See, he's saying I'm a fellow leader in the church too. So you got the word elders and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Ready for it? Shepherd the flock of God. So it's the verb form of poimain. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Ready? Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. He takes all three concepts or ideas or functions and he puts them all into this one, this one paragraph, two sen- a sentence and a half basically. And he's really given prominence to the idea of elder. It's the only one in, that's used as a noun. The others are used as verbs. It's interesting. Now, with all that said, I don't know if I've convinced you or not, but need- needless to say, what we can't debate ultimately, not very much anyway, is the qualifications. What does it mean for an elder, a pastor, an overseer to be qualified to lead the church? Paul gives us clear instructions in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Here is the word of God on this for us. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This ends our reading of the word of God this morning. Let's ask the Lord his blessings on it. Lord, help us to understand these qualifications. Help us to be even-handed and not have a quarrelsome spirit about the more debated one, but an overall, Lord, that we can accept these qualifications as true. I pray that in any respect uh, where Matt, myself, or any of our deacons who have similar qualifications, where we're struggling, where we may be falling short, that you would be gracious to us and kind and help us to be men of repute and honor in leading your people. For, Lord... We know we need help in this Christian life. So grant us your grace, please, in Christ's name. Amen. So I've preached these verses so many times at our church. I think I did a count. I think this may be the fifth or sixth time. You say, boy, that makes the sermon prep a lot easier, doesn't it? Well, maybe some ways it does, but actually the more you study these things, you go, oh my goodness, there's so much here. It's overwhelming. As a pastor, is overwhelming to read these words. It is convicting, as you might can imagine. So what are the main truths that we can walk away from here? We're on point number three, even though we just got to our text. Number three, what are the qualifications of an elder? First of all, he must want it. 
A man must desire to lead the church. Um, I've met some pastors. I, I'll be honest with you. I wonder if they even care. I wonder if they really care for the people or not. Now listen, every pastor can go through a season of struggling with that. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I've seen some men who didn't seem to really want it. The foundation for the elders' qualifications begins with that in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. This is true. This is indisputable. If anyone, any man, aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Paul uses two different words that basically mean desire to demonstrate we must want it. The first word is translated aspires. It means to strive for something. It's a desire that aspires to strive for something. The second word is translated desires. It's an even stronger version of the word for desires. They're close synonyms. They're not exact, but they both mean that you've got to want it. You must desire it. it. You must know deep in your heart that you can do nothing else. And friend, I can tell you what. From age 15 to age 20, Sarah was there for about two and a half years of that. She can testify that I did about everything I could to not want it. But God would not let me go. I wanted it. Yeah, I didn't know that I wanted it. I thought I didn't want it. But I have, apparently I wanted it because he would not leave me alone. The word desire is strong here. True aspiration to serve as an elder comes from God. Doesn't come from your mom and your dad. Doesn't even come from another Christian. It comes from God. It burns in our hearts. It's a passion. It's a love for Jesus and it's a love for his church and it's it's a love to see his people shepherded. True aspiration is required. Why? Because Paul says if you aspire, aspire for it, you desire it, it is a noble task. The word noble task there in the Greek is literally, it's a good work. It's a really, really good thing if you desire this, okay? You can't make yourself desire it, but if you do desire it, it's a good thing because it's a good work. But how can a man know? How can you, listen to me, if you'd asked me at age 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and even at 20, I was a confused young man for a lot of reasons. But if you'd asked me how, I'd be like, I don't know for sure, but on this side, I know why. How in the world can a man know that this is truly God giving him this desire and it's not just an emotional whim, right? Number four, a man must be qualified. That's how you know if you're qualified. You're different. You will be different. A man must be qualified for the office of church leadership. A desire must be tested how is it tested? By qualifications. And if you meet certain qualifications, then your aspiration and desire must be true. Now, there are men out there who aspire to lead a church and desire to lead it, but they're not qualified. Therefore, their desire is not from God. It's from themselves. It's from their selfish motivations. It must come from God. And if it comes from God, these 14 qualifications will be present. These are nearly identical to those that are given to the deacons, except deacons are not required to teach. They, they don't have to be able to teach in order to serve as a deacon. So let's look at these 14. Number one, and we'll go through these fairly quickly as best I can. Number one is above reproach. This translates one word in the Greek. It literally means blameless, without blame. 
Now, this does not mean a pastor must be sinless, for that would mean what? Nobody could be a pastor. There is no such thing as a sinless man in this world. But it means that he must not have a glaring character or conduct issue. Not talking about does he have a bad day from time to time or he's having some, that's different. We all do that. But not a glaring conduct issue. The elder must be consistently faithful to Christ. The remaining 13 qualifications, in essence, are really kind of just summaries or examples of what it means to be above reproach. So in some ways, you must desire the office and you must be above reproach in order to confirm that your calling is true and that you're qualified. What does it mean to be above reproach? Well, here's 13 ways. Number two, you must be a one-woman man. Now, the phrase in the translation that we have, and in most translation, is the husband of one wife. This is by far the most debated qualification on the list. I always think it's ironic that churches that are, what I'm about to talk about in a minute, that are so gung-ho, and this man must never, ever, ever have a divorce in his past. doesn't matter what his life has been like for 10 years. He must never have a divorce in his past, yet it's like they just skim over and ignore the rest of the qualifications. I've seen that happen. And it'd be a very ungodly pastor, or at least not a qualified man to be in the office. Nonetheless, this qualification is infamous for splitting churches, majorly. I've seen it happen. I've been in business meetings where it's about to erupt, and it's like, oh my goodness, what is going on? As some people believe that a divorce in a man's life automatically disqualifies him for life from ever serving as a pastor or serving as a deacon. Now, I've given a fuller treatment of this many times in the past. You can go check out other sermons. I think I've blogged about it, or you can just talk to me personally. So I'm going to try to keep this shorter this morning. But here's a few key things. First and foremost, the translation, husband of one wife, the husband of one wife, is riddled with issues. For one, the word the is not there, okay? It's a husband of one wife, if you're going to translate it that way. It's misleading to translate it this way. In the Greek... The word, you have to listen closely, the word wife is the same word that they would use for the word woman. Wife, woman, same word in the Greek. And the word for husband is the same word that you would use for man in the Greek. It's the same word, okay? So that's impossible. No, it's very possible. A lot of cultures do it that way, okay? Now, Therefore, the phrase, the husband of one wife, I believe, is more literally translated a, no definite article there, so it's a one woman man, is the idea of what Paul is teaching. If this is true, and I'm not alone, it's not like I'm some, her- this is not heresy what I'm teaching. You may not agree, but it is not heresy, okay? Many godly men have held to this view. If this is true, Paul's point is that an elder must not be known for being a womanizer. He must be sexually pure. He must not be a fornicator. He must not be uh, married and has a woman on the side, etc., etc., whatever the case may be. Even if the man has a divorce in his past, we confirm, along with the word of God, that God's grace is greater than all our sin, including the sin of divorce. Now, look at our bylaws. We have standards of, you know, there's got to be a certain amount of time, you know. and Go look at that, but for this morning, that's all I'll say. Number three, sober-minded. Literally, 
It's one word. Literally, the word means to be moderate in drinking alcohol. But in this, this word can also mean be sober-minded in how you make decisions and how you respond to things. Paul has in mind here the more figurative use, I believe, because he's going to address alcohol in, in just a couple, okay? So the more figurative meaning of self-controlled, level-headed. The elder must be mentally free of mental excesses in that way. He must be a level-headed guy. Elders are going to face so many decisions and so many situations. You cannot be a reactive person. You've got to be level-headed. And I don't, you say, how in the world? I've been in some situations. Some of y'all have been with me in those situations. And you said things like, how did you stay so calm? All I can tell you is just God. I, I am nothing. I'm a nobody. All I know is God did it. I can't be that way in those moments. Okay, so that's a quality from God. Four, you, he must be self-controlled. The word means to be prudent, literally, or thoughtful about being in control of his entire self, to be cognizant, to be aware of what you're doing with your body, what you're doing with your, what the, how these decisions affect people. Elders are to be sensible, balanced decision makers. It has everything to do with decision making as opposed to wild and erratic uh, I've been around some pastors. Now, this might be a good quality, maybe a missionary, maybe, to be you know, wild and erratic, ready to do this. But it, generally speaking, in a local church, it's hard to follow a wild and erratic leader. It's like, whoa, where's he going now? You know, you just, yeah. You know, and it's, maybe I'm a little too much, you know, you know, bland pudding at times. But the point being, we got to be very, very controlled. Okay? Five, respectable. The word here means to be honorable to be appropriate in both your character and in your behavior. Uh, man, we all fail at times. But I remember listening to a, a sermon a while back, fairly well-known evangelical preacher of a large church, and he was speaking on the holiness of God. And I was in it, man. I was like, yeah, the holiness of God. And he was talking about honoring God and the holiness of God. And then right on the heels of that, he cracks this joke. That was borderline lewd, but for sure crude. And I'm going, that's not honorable. That's not appropriate. And we all can cross those lines at times and we forgive one another. But if that's a consistent pattern in a pastor, that's a problem. The elder must demonstrate an outward life that is reflective of a true godly inner life. Six, he must be hospitable. The word describes the elder's life and home as an open door to all people, including strangers. But particularly, I would argue, church family. And I don't know if I've said it lately, but our home is open to you. If you need to come over, you're welcome to come over. Um, sometimes we're not always the best to say, hey, won't you come over? But, I mean, you're welcome. And you say, do we have to invite ourselves? Well, maybe, probably. You know, I don't know that I'm so hospitable that you show up that uh, maybe, maybe I'm fa falling short. I don't know. And I may be like, whoa, where, where'd you come from? But at least get a little heads up, you know. But nonetheless, our home is your home if you need us, for sure. Seven. He must be able to teach. He must be able to teach. He must be able to teach. Can I say that again? He must be able to teach. Oh, he can't have a divorce. Then you go and you hear this pastor who's not divorced, but then he preaches and you're going, what did he even say? I don't understand a word that guy said. What's the point? He must be able to teach. It translates one word that means the elder must have a good understanding of the Bible and must be able to relate the Bible to people in a generally understandable way through preaching, through discipleship, through biblical correction. Number eight, 
He must not be a drunkard. This phrase describes the elder as controlled in use of alcohol. Now, some churches would require that the elder or the pastor be a teetotaler, that he, he doesn't drink at all, ever, ever, ever. Now, that's respectable in some respects. You know, that's their view, and we're going to be respectful of that. But the Bible here does not draw that line. Paul, Paul could have very easily said an elder must not drink alcohol, right? I mean, why wouldn't he say that if that's the, the qualification? He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, don't be guilty of excessive use of alcohol. Don't be a drunkard. Don't be controlled by that substance. So therefore, we affirm that an elder may choose to drink in moderation, but that must be self-controlled. It must be in always keeping in mind the entire body and those whom you're around so that you not offend the weak conscience of a person who may struggle in that area to affirm that. Nine, he must not be violent but gentle. He must not be a cussing pastor who cusses you out. We laugh, but I mean, I've heard the stories right here in this town. Pastors cussing out his members for how they dare question his leadership. Sir, you need to go home. Or repent or go home. That's what I say. That's not how you treat one another in the family of God. We can't be violent like that with our mouth or with our bodies. The phrase forbids a man with a hot temper from serving as the leader of the church. The elder must keep his cool. You better be ready to keep your cool, church, right, elders. Because when a sheep comes along and it's hostile, not to mention there's goats out there, not to mention there's wolves out there. So the goats are those who claim to be Christians but are kind of borderline, like, I don't know about that, and they're not. A wolf is, they may fool, say they're Christians or think they are, but they're obviously not a Christian because of their aggressive stance against Christ. The elder must learn to deal with these situations in conflict <clears throat> without losing it. He must learn the art of kindness, even when taking the shepherd hook, the shepherd stick, and popping a goat, and running a wolf out of the church. I've often said, you know, I'm, I'm about as nice to a wolf as I am to, to one of my sheep, most of the time. Sometimes I get a little bit, eh. but I think that's okay <clears throat> with a wolf. With a sheep, it's never appropriate. No, a sheep... I mean, like a father, you may have to change the tone of your voice occasionally. You may have to speak some truth into someone's life, right? But you don't treat a sheep like you would a goat. You don't treat a sheep like you would a wolf. Number 10, is that where I'm at? Yes. Peaceable. The word peaceable is closely related to the previous qualification of gentle. Man, gentle. Elders must not be quarrelsome, argumentative, um, I try so hard, and I pray that I'm accomplishing it, that Matt and I both are. When it comes to primary doctrine, we're going to disagree with you if you don't agree with us, but hopefully even majority of the time it's going to be in a, a loving, kind way. If we get to secondary, tertiary doctrines, we're, we're not going to be quarrelsome. We're not going to fight about it. Friend, time is too short to be fighting over secondary and tertiary doctrines. This world is going to hell. This world is going to hell in a handbasket. And the last thing you and I need to be arguing about is, you know, things, uh, lesser matters that we can agree to disagree on. 
11, <clears throat> excuse me, not a lover of money. The phrase translates one word. It forbids greediness. The two sins, I believe, that will disqualify a pastor uh, most frequently is sexual immorality, so not being a one-woman kind of man, and this one, greediness. This type of greediness, this money, <clears throat> excuse me, this money, love for money, is the predominant sin of so many ministries in our world, so many churches in our world. I think about the TBN-type preachers, the Kenneth Copelands and the Joyce Myers and the Joel Osteens, just to pick on them, but there's many others who teach a false gospel of earthly prosperity, if you have enough faith, you'll be wealthy and rich and healthy, and that's God's purpose in your life. And I'm just here to tell you, that is not always the case in this life. It's a shame that, when such, teacher, that such teachers are in the business of fleecing the sheep instead of what? What did Jesus say we are to come to do? Lay down our lives for the sheep. I want a pastor, you should want a pastor who has left the prospect of earthly wealth in order to serve you with his life. 12, he must be a good manager of his home. This phrase requires an elder to have a home life that's well-ordered. He must, verse four, manage his own household well. If married, this means his wife should be in submission to his leadership. But doesn't mean he's harsh with her and you do what I say, because then that would be against some of the other qualifications. You see that? No, it's loving leadership. It's a love of his wife and leading her. And she responds to that with a, a humble submission. And, and they work together. Did you hear that, men, husbands? They work together, amen, for the common goal of godliness in this world. If he has children, he must lead them, he says, verse 4, with all dignity, keeping his ch children submissive. Paul connects this directly to the elders' leadership in the church. Verse 5, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? What's the answer to that rhetorical question? He won't. He can't. A church pastor, elder, is only as qualified, is only, will only do as well serving as he does serving and leading his family. Doesn't mean we're perfect. And by the way, it is not okay for you to hold my family to a higher standard than yours. Because your family and my family, there's one standard, ultimately, right? And I'll say more about that in a minute. There's only one standard for all of us, and that is the Word of God. 13, he must not be a recent convert. The phrase tells us that an elder must be mature in the faith. It's not about physical age, it's ages, about spiritual maturity, spiritual age. Here's the thing, guys. I love a new believer. It's so much fun to be around a new believer, isn't it? Because they're just, they're zealous and they're excited for Jesus. It's, it's awesome. I love it. But a new believer is prone to swelling with pride as they are still learning the ropes when it comes to sanctification. What is sanctification? Man, they know what justification is. Jesus saved me by grace. I didn't deserve it. I'm so excited about what Jesus did. And now that he saved me, I see everything is black and white. And this is right and that's wrong. And you ought to not do this and you should be doing this. What happens? Justification. They understand it. It's so exciting. Sanctification, they're not real getting it quite right. I believe this is demonstrated by what Paul is saying. This idea, this black and white, everything's black and white, and you're wrong, and you're right. It's confirmed by Paul. Look at verse 6. He says, they might become puffed up with conceit 
and fall into condemnation, to the condemnation of the devil. You know what the word condemnation there literally is in the Greek? They might fall into judging or being judgmental. Literally, the word can be translated judging or judgment. They might fall, this idea of this condemnation, this, it's a judgmental spirit, this puffing up with pride, it's related, I believe. They are prone to a judgmentalism that hinders them from being merciful. There's one way to keep your sheep from trusting you with their lives and sharing what's going on in their homes, their marriages, and their families, and their schools, and their struggles they're having. There's one way to do that. is to set yourself up as everything's black and white, everything's right and wrong, and no, nobody ought to be sinning in this church. And the reality is we're all struggling. And we need to show mercy with a good dose of exhortation to boot. We don't just show the mercy and go, eh, go on and sin, brother, it's fine. No, there's mercy, there's comfort. Simultaneously, we're encouraging one another, stop the sinning. Stop it, brother, stop it, sister. 14, well thought of by outsiders. The phrase reminds us that while an elder, we know that we're gonna be falsely accused. It happens all the time, mainly outside the church, but inside the church occasionally too. We must not be known for persistent, genuine faults. We must be so consistent with a good testimony in the community outside the church that when the accusations do come, they don't stick. So, for example, I think I've shared this with you before. I know, I know of at least two. This is just the ones I know of. I know in our community there have been two testimonies that I am a cult leader. For sure. I know that. And there's probably more. If there's just two, there's probably quite a few. I am a cult leader. Now, I was going to ask you, you guys know me. I've been here 12 years. Do, does that accusation stick in your mind? Okay, thank you, Roger. appreciate that. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. <laughs> I, woo! That's, that's, a, that's just a very practical example. And here's the reality. I think most people in our community know that those kooks, I'm making that up. I think most people in our community would say, I don't know if I agree with everything over at Grace Life, but they're a church. You know, he's a pastor. Okay. And so it doesn't stick to us. All right. But without a good testimony, Paul says, otherwise the elder will fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. So in all this, closing up, in all this, Paul is emphasizing that elders must be qualified to serve. It's not optional. Why? Because they are to be examples. We are examples of Christ's likeness to you, for you. The purpose of having godly elders is not to separate the men from the boys, to separate the Christians, like the super Christians, really holy and wise, from the, the little laity over here. You know. That's Roman Catholicism, y'all. We're not doing that here. If we ever do that, feel that way here, I'm sorry. We're, not, we're trying our best not to do that. The elders are not, no, we're the... We're the professionals. You leave this up to us. No. That's not the purpose of having elders. The purpose is so that we be examples to you of what, how you are to walk with Christ. Because, I'll, hear me out. All 14 of these qualifications have application to all Christians. You say, well, I can't be. I'm not able to teach. Well, maybe not from a pulpit. Maybe not in a Bible study. But you should be able to teach your children. 
and your grandchildren and a coworker about Jesus. Should you not be able to do that? Right, okay. So all of these are qualifications, in essence, of what it means to be a Christian. The elder is just to be set up as an example, and that goes back to what I said earlier. But in doing this, it's not a higher standard in the actual qualifications. Now, granted, James does say there shouldn't be many teachers among you before they will be held to a higher standard in the sense of there is an obligation to God in that sense. But when it comes to the qualifications themselves, it's the same standards. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? So in the end, only Jesus qualifies us. You say, I can't do this. I'm not that. It's okay, breathe. Jesus is the one who saved you. Jesus is the one who qualifies you to be a disciple, right? Whether you serve as an elder or a deacon or just some other position in the church, it doesn't matter. We're all called to this, and he qualifies us. He equips those whom he calls, He went to the cross to pay the sin debt that we had against God. He rose from the dead on the third day so that he would be triumphant over both sin and death. And he did this so that all who would come after him would deny himself and take up their cross and follow him. And what does it look like to follow him but these 14 qualifications? Is that not part of what it means to follow Christ? It's to live in these sorts of ways. May the Lord grant us his grace to do so. Let's pray. God, help us. Starting from myself and Matt, starting with our deacons, working its way all the way through the very fabric of our entire church family. May we see that these qualifications are not just for the pastors. Yes, there are to be men set apart for the task. Yet, Lord, you have called us all to be above reproach, and to be above reproach in in each of these ways. Lord, in this way, we know that this walk with you is not optional. We thank you that this life is not law, however, that it is grace. Father, May we learn that more fully, with more understanding, that we've been saved by grace. And it is by your grace that we walk in your ways through faith. So that all the glory comes back to you. Yet where there is sin in us, where there is disobedience, all the credit for that shame comes back to us. But, oh, Father, we know we have an advocate with you, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So that if we confess our sins, you are indeed faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that when we read a list of qualifications like this, we're not overwhelmed. We don't feel it as a burden. We feel it as freedom in Jesus. So, Lord, would you grant us the grace of godly leadership here? Help us to grow in godliness as men leading. And help the sheep grow in godliness and following us as we follow you. In the name of the Lord, we pray, the Lord Jesus, amen.